the transformation of northeastern germany through the german polish wars the history of scandinavia to the second half of the fifteenth century by hans putz from the history of all nations from earliest times volume ten the age of renaissance translated under the supervision of john henry wright this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. read by piotr Nater. at the end of the fourteenth and the beginning of the fifteenth century germany underwent not only a grave internal crisis but also experienced the first territorial losses which made the maintenance of its former central position impossible in the north the kingdom had to abandon its hegemony over the scandinavian states and in the south it lost milan on the other hand germany was drawn into complications with its eastern slavonic neighbours with the result that it succumbed to the anti-germanic policy which ruled in those parts the house of luxembourg above all was responsible for having brought germany to this pass the luxembourgers made bohemia and its dependencies lusatia and silesia more and more independent of the realm their policy centred entirely in the east because of sigismund's possession of the hungarian crown the national forces which they used there to further the interests of their house soon got beyond their control and rose against the eastern districts once conquered and civilized by the germans thus it happened that while the west was filled with the din of the hundred years war the old conflict between the germans and slavs raged in the northeast of central europe about a century had passed since the overthrow of the last great revolt of the prussians it was the zenith of the state of the teutonic order in which however after the decease of winrich von kniprode the signs of decay forthwith appeared for the change which the cessation of religious wars brought about in the whole position of the order naturally reacted on the relations to its subjects who did not mean to have the rights and privileges which had been granted them on settling in the domain of the order curtailed add to this the rise of a great foreign power through the union of poland and lithuania now the prime condition of the future of the state of the order was the recovery of prussia and the conquest of the baltic coast meanwhile the teutonic order still maintained its predominant position abroad under konrad von jungingen the order seized the island of gotland which the dethroned danish king albert of mecklenburg held in forfeit the knights put an end to the piracy of the victualling brothers on the island and thus gained a maritime position which ensured them a decisive voice in northern affairs but internal dissensions already invaded their ranks the nobility of kulmland had formed the lizard league Eidechsbund, in thirteen ninety seven for the protection of their rights against the aggression of the order already the cities considered similar measures to avert the damage inflicted on their trade by the commercial operations of the order about this time the national agitation attendant on the accession of jagiello of lithuania to the polish throne as władysław the second increased anti-german sentiment in poland the diplomatic arts of sigismund who tried to repress poland and at the same time make the order subservient to his family policy proved a failure nor could they prevent the outbreak of open war the bone of contention between the order and poland was the new march of brandenburg and the district around Dresden. 
This latter was the only means of communication between the Order and Germany. Hostilities broke out in 1409, which stopped only for a short time when Sigismund mediated a truce. In the spring of 1410, a terrible national war broke out in the northeast of Germany. Under the leadership of Władysław II and the great Duke Witold, the Poles, Lithuanians, Russians and Tartars, reinforced by Bohemian mercenaries, invaded the lands of the Order. Its Grand Master, Ulrich von Jungingen, 1407-1410, was at Thorn with German reinforcements when he heard that the enemy was marching straight on Marienburg, wasting the country far and wide. By a hurried night march he proceeded thence, and found the enemy on June 15, 1410, encamped on a ridge near Tannenberg. Forthwith he prepared for battle, but the enemy refused to accept it until a formal challenge and the urgent demand of Witold induced the wavering Władysław to decide on the battle. The armies clashed with terrible force in the intervening ravine. The Poles could not withstand the charge of the German cavalry and wavered. A fresh charge rode down the Lithuanians on the left flank and drove them in headlong flight. But the pursuit made a gap in the ranks of the German army. Into this opening the Poles hurled themselves, forcing the enemy to fall back. When the pursuing part of the Germans returned, they were themselves met and hard-pressed by a superior force which had followed them. At this critical moment, the Grand Master, with a picked body of men, made a sudden attack on the centre of the opposing army, which the Polish king and his train held. A Polish nobleman saved the life of his king, whereupon Jungingen and his men were surrounded and cut down. Heavy as this loss was, the defeat of the order was decided only when the reserve of Prussian noblemen, who belonged mainly to the Lizard League, deserted their banner and left the field. Thereupon the whole German army took to flight. But the Poles and Lithuanians drove them into the surrounding marshes and fence and cut down great numbers. The number of dead and captured was very large. The strength of the Teutonic order was broken for the time being. Had the victors followed up their victory, the whole of Prussia must have fallen into the hands of the Poles. But the wavering and timid king was not the man to act immediately. Under the circumstances, it was fatal to the order that the majority of its members and subjects, thinking its rule had come to an end, rivaled one another in forcing the king to take steps for which he himself lacked the courage. The commanders surrendered their castles to him only to leave the country, and in some cases to carry off the treasures of the castles. The nobility and towns hastened to pay homage to their new lord, in order to be rewarded by rights and privileges which they could never have wrung from their former ruler. If the castle of Marienburg fell likewise, the destruction of the order was inevitable. The commander of Schwedz, Henry von Plauen, recognized this. He hurried with his men to Marienburg, to which he drew the garrisons of the castles which had not fallen as yet, but his four thousand men did not suffice for the defense. Therefore Plauen had the city partly burned and housed the inhabitants safely in the castle. After vain negotiations, Władysław II began the siege. But although the desertion from the order went on, Marienburg held out. Infectious diseases broke out in the Polo-Lithuanian camp. Add to this the growing estrangement between the king and the Lithuanians. Furthermore, Germany finally took steps for the protection of its frontier. At the end of September 1410, Władysław raised the siege and withdrew pillaging to the south. 
Thereupon the order rose anew. The restless activity of Plauen, who had been made governor, and the aid of the German reinforcements succeeded in reconquering more and more of the lost territory. As Władysław remained inactive, the disappointed renegades returned in increasing numbers to their rightful lord. Thus Plauen, meanwhile made Grand Master, could make a peace at Thorn in February 1411, which was unexpectedly favourable, but it settled none of the contested territorial questions. On the other hand, the order was burdened with financial indemnities which it could not pay. It had to pay six million groats pro rata for the ransom of captives. The exhausted country could only raise such a sum by straining its taxing powers to the utmost. Nobody felt the burden more than those who had discarded the Polish allegiance for the old one. These circles again contemplated disloyalty. The renewed desertion of Danzig was thwarted by its commander, a brother of Henry von Plauen, who punished it by the unlawful execution of the two ringleaders. The issue of worthless notes and the levy of a general tax by the order only increased the discontent. That gave its old enemy, the Lizard League, ample opportunity for constant agitation. Withal, the order was at sword's points with Władysław about the execution of the terms of the peace. He raised exceptions here, and misinterpreted there, only to have some sort of pretext for a renewal of hostilities. The Grand Master saw through his schemes. He recognized that only the quickest possible outbreak of war could draw the order out of the threatening snare. But the prospect of success depended entirely upon the eager support of the order's subjects. Plauen must ensure that first of all. He offered his subjects a part in the administration of affairs by establishing a general council, Landesat. It was to consist of twenty representatives of the nobility and twenty-seven of the cities, and was to meet annually at Elbing. The council was to have a share in the regulation of finances and coinage, the levying and assessing of taxes and dues. Besides, the country was to hold it responsible in part for its administration. No one can gainsay that this was a happy thought on the part of Plauen. However, the innovation met with determined resistance from the order. Quite apart from it, the knights grumbled at the severity with which the Grand Master tried to restore discipline and even accused him of aiming at royal power. He had already been forced to punish several conspirators unmercifully. Now he threatened to secure his subjects from the tyranny of the members of the order. As a result, the latter rebelled openly against its head the very moment the Polish war broke out again. Smarting under the punishment with which the Grand Master had chastised him for insubordination, the Marshal of the Order, Michael Küchmeister of Sternberg, led the insurrection. At a meeting of the chapter of the Order in Marienburg on October 14, 1413, he and his adherents brought a formal charge against Plauen, chiefly on the ground of his having established the General Council. By a violent breach of the law, the General Chapter deposed him, but as his guilt was not proved, it could only banish him as commander to the Engelsburg, one of the most miserable and distant castles of the Order. But the leaders of this coup d'etat did not feel safe so long as Plauen was free. In May 1414, they had him arrested on the fictitious grounds of treasonable correspondence with Poland. The charge was never proved, and consequently the inevitable punishment never executed. But for ten years the hero was held in miserable captivity as a prisoner of state. 
Finally, the Grand Master, Paul von Rusdorf, released him. He was made warder, it est superior of Lochstadt in Zamland, a non-conventual castle of the order. There the martyr died at the close of 1429. Dire vengeance fell upon the order for the injustice it had done its last great hero and statesman. The Polish war continued, though it was not formally declared. The frontiers suffered severely. Trade and commerce were greatly damaged, thus increasing the discontent of the disaffected subjects of the Teutonic order. The Council of Constance, which had drawn the matter before its tribunal, did not dare to decide against Władysław and Witold, whose assistance it needed against the Turks. Sigismund persisted in his vacillating policy. Consequently, Poland could make ever greater claims on the order. It demanded the restoration of Pomeren, Mazovia, and Kulmland. That amounted to a dissolution of the Teutonic order. Even Sigismund rejected those demands in his arbitrament pronounced at Breslau in 1420. The voluntary abdication of Michael Küchmeister in 1422 was a tardy, but nevertheless the best amount honorable that could be made, Henry von Plauen. It spoke still more for Plauen's ability that Küchmeister's successor, the Grand Master Paul von Rusdorf, 1422-1441, adopted the policy which Plauen had inaugurated. Of course it was not successful. Rusdorf only caused greater confusion and gave the Poles and his disaffected subjects every opportunity of playing into each other's hands. The renewed war with Poland had to be stopped because the Prussian states refused to participate. The peace of Melnoze, which resulted in 1423, cost the order more than Galindia and Samaitia. It contained the fatal clause that the subjects of whichever party broke the treaty should be free from allegiance to the party concerned. This left the Prussian estates the power to rebel with impunity and to unite with Poland whenever they chose. The same strained relations to Poland kept on while the land was ravaged in 1443 by Hussite inroads. On Władysław's death, the next year his successor, Władysław III, brought about a so-called eternal peace at Brescht in 1435. But it not only cost the order some territory, but also hurt its position with the Polish bishops, while it cut off certain of its resources. Violent internal dissensions did not tend to improve the condition of the order. The knights were at one in absolutely rejecting the concessions which the Grand Master made his subjects. This removed every hope of the restoration of eternal peace. Self-help was the last resort of the estates. In 1439, delegates from Elbing, Thorn, and Kulm met to discuss the project of common action for the improvement of their condition. Naturally, the nobility did not hold back. A lively agitation sprang up. In 1440, the cities of the West chiefly made a league at Marienwerder for the common defense of their rights against the arbitrary rule of the order. The nobility joined the league, which soon united the majority of Prussian estates against their territorial lord. In vain, an influential nobleman, Hans von Weizen, tried to mediate. He finally became the leader of the league himself. He was well fitted for his part on account of his connection with the Polish court. As he was unable to break up the league, Paul von Rusdorf confirmed it. He declared his willingness to have all abuses examined and remedied by representatives of both parties. The estates had completely triumphed over the order. The latter itself charged the Grand Master with treachery, so there was nothing for Rusdorf but to abdicate. His successor, Konrad von Erlichschauen, 
1441-1449, had to adapt his bearing to the League, to the will of the majority of the order. His reintroduction of poundage, a tax on the pound of important merchandise, to further the order's trade, brought upon him not only the enmity of the Russian towns, but also of the Hanseatic League. Finally, he was forced to make concessions again. To make that impossible for the future, the officials of the order made Conrad's nephew, Louis, 1450-1467, to submit to a formal capitulation at his accession in open defiance of its statutes. It obliged him to consult the officials and commanders of the order in all weighty matters, and concerned especially all matters touching the League. But now the estates too wished to make their recognition of the Grand Master conditional on his confirming their League and remedying their grievances. Louis von Erlichshausen had to submit to this demand likewise. Not until he had solemnly sworn to do away with certain of the worst abuses did the estates acknowledge their allegiance to him. But the form of their oath of fidelity was of their own choosing. Neither the Grand Master, however, nor the Order intended to fulfil the obligations assumed. They used every means to break up the League. The cities and noble members united the more closely, and took the first step towards securing the aid of Poland. The Order also sought help. In its extremity it applied to both the Emperor and the Pope. A papal legate appeared in Prussia to dissolve the League in the name of the Church. That only embittered the opposition. The Order played a very sorry role by bringing an action against the Prussian League in the Imperial Court. Naturally, the Estates sent representatives to the Court, but at the same time they applied for help and offered submission to the Polish Court. In spite of many scruples, Władysław finally acceded to their proposal. Meanwhile, the Prussian Estates had mustered their forces when at last the Imperial Judgment was proclaimed. It dissolved the League as illegal, and demanded the punishment of its originators and abettors. Thereupon, the League formally disavowed its allegiance to the Order on February the 4th, 1454. All the waverers followed suit when it became known that the Order had tried to assassinate Hans von Beisen, the leader of the League. Thus, the baneful Thirteen Years' War of the Prussian cities broke out early in 1454. It cost Germany the eastern marches, and gave them over to the misrule of the Slavs for several centuries. In a few months, the order lost its grasp on the country, with the exception of a few fortresses. Marienburg still belonged to it. The hopeless condition of the order is apparent in Louis von Erlichshausen's prayer for mediation to Casimir IV of Poland. Thus the Grand Master of the Order rivalled the League in playing false to his country. In February 21, 1454, Hans von Beisen, in the name of the Prussian Estates, declared their submission to the crown of Poland before the king and diet in Krakow. Poland immediately declared war on the order. A treaty was made on March 6, 1454, which regulated the future relations of Prussia to Poland. The king promised the preservation of local privileges and the abrogation of poundage and other obnoxious dues in Pomereln. Only natives were to fill the offices of state, and the League was to have a consultative voice in all state affairs. The governor was to represent the Polish king. Casimir IV shrewdly chose Hans von Beisen for this post. Presently the League took a solemn oath of allegiance to the Polish king. But the progress of the war did not come up to the expectations of the Poles and their Prussian rebels, 
on account of the order's resistance. The smaller towns soon saw how little they had gained by transferring their allegiance. The country split up into two parties. The larger cities, such as Danzig, Thorn, and Elbing, together with their dependent ones on both sides of the Vistula, followed their commercial interests and adhered to Poland. The poorer agricultural towns of eastern Prussia stood by the order and retained their German character. Finally, however, the order succumbed, less to a military than to a financial crisis, for as it could no longer pay its mercenaries, they had to be bought off by mortgages on the castles they had garrisoned. As the order was even then unable to meet its obligations, the mercenaries tried to get their pay by selling the castles and cities to the enemies. Thus, in 1455, even Marienburg fell into the power of the rebels. It was retaken in the next year by the faithful mayor, Bartholomew Blume, and did not finally surrender until 1460. Blume died on the scaffold. A desultory war of plunder and pillage dragged on for some years, only relieved by a futile truce. Finally, it ended in the second peace of Thorn on October 18, 1466, which the Pope had brought about. The order lost half its possessions. The East, which remained to the order, became a feudal fief of the Polish crown. It was bound to help Poland against all its enemies, and could not make treaties with foreign powers without Poland's consent. The Polonization of the order was begun by the stipulation that henceforth half of its members should be Poles, and that Poles should be admitted in equal numbers to all its offices. Besides, the order had to grant a general amnesty to the rebels. The land, which had been filled with agricultural prosperity, was a desert. Its inhabitants had in great part died of hunger, misery, and disease. The western half, severed from the order, had also paid the price for its supposed freedom, which was out of all proportion to its gain. Danzig, Thorn, and Elbing, which had borne the brunt of the war, were financially exhausted, and for many years carried a heavy load of debts. To be sure, their convenient communication with Poland opened up to them untold sources of wealth. By utilizing these, Danzig became the leading emporium of the north and won an influential political position. Otherwise, these cities soon learned how little Poland intended to keep its promises. It desired rather to change the Polish overlordship to full sovereignty and thus thoroughly polonize the country. To avert this doom, the forces of the smaller towns and the countryside were insufficient. The effects of the downfall of the mighty state of the Teutonic Order were felt far beyond its boundaries, for it deprived Germany of its chief bulwark and its chief military force against the northeast. It was fortunate for Germany that the Slavs at that moment lacked the men to concentrate their powers and lead them to the desired end. Many had looked to the Lithuanian prince Witold, but his death in 1430 dashed such hopes to the ground, for Władysław II, who now definitely united Lithuania and Poland, was neither fit nor willing to lead his nation on to victory. On the contrary, he pacified the Polish nobility with vast rights and privileges. In consequence, the authority of the king sank low, while the citizens and peasants were reduced to serfdom, and the Polish state declined rapidly. The succession of Władysław's minor son, Władysław III, 1434-1444, to 1444, accelerated this downward course. The government fell into hands of the court nobility. 
This circumstance led to the failure of prospects which the Hussite government opened to the house of Jagiełło. For one faction of the Bohemians wished to crown the Polish king, or the member of his family, king of Bohemia, instead of King Sigismund of Germany. But the memory of their former union made a renewed one between Poland and Hungary much more acceptable to the Poles. After the death of Albert II, the Hungarian nobility strove to marry his widow, Elizabeth, to Władysław III, but the queen widow objected. In spite of her objection, the Polish king was crowned king of Hungary at Buda. But at first he had to fight hard for his crown against the numerous defendants of the rights of Albert's posthumous son Ladislaus. The conflict was still undecided when a threatened Turkish invasion drew off both parties. In 1444, Władysław III lost his life in the Battle of Varna, which was a victory for the Turks. The Polish magnates chose as king Casimir, the only brother of the late king, who died childless. But he who had recently conquered the principality of Lithuania was not inclined to accept the degraded Polish crown. Thus an interregnum of almost four years, 1444 to 1447, ensued. Casimir did not change his mind until the Poles offered their crown to Duke Boleslas of Mazovia. He then, in the summer of 1447, was crowned at Krakow. The interregnum had naturally strengthened the power of the magnates. Casimir strove in vain to break it. For years he refused to take the oath to support the constitution of Poland. At last he had to acknowledge it solemnly at the Diet of Petrikau in 1453. Henceforth Poland was an aristocratic republic. But the increased claims on the time and powers of the nobility now grew to such an extent that they could no longer give the proper attention to state affairs. The circumstance led to the formation of a representative government. The provincial assemblies of notables elected representatives who in their name were to vote taxes and direct state affairs in a manner binding to all. There was no definite relation between the number of the electors and the elected, nor was the number of the latter fixed. How arbitrary this form of government was appears from the fact that, regardless of the existence of representatives, every nobleman had the right to appear at the diets and cast a vote which had the same weight as those of the representatives. The high court and crown officials who had formerly been members of the king's privy council still held the first place at the diets. They now formed the senates and were a privileged body. The principle soon obtained that without this representative body of the nobility no innovation could be introduced nor the constitution in especial changed. Naturally there was no room for city representatives in this aristocratic republic. Heavy retribution for this treachery to the German cause fell upon the western, now Polish, half of the state of the Teutonic order, for its cities and nobility were drawn into this system of government which inevitably led to barbarism. While Poland, irrespective of internal decay, exercised great influence abroad in the first half of the 15th century, the neighboring country of Russia still groaned under its subjugation to the Mongols. It was just making laborious efforts to gather strength for national unity. The Principality of Moscow was the center of this movement. There the House of Kalita, which was founded by a grandson of Alexander Nevsky, a tributary to the Khan of the Golden Horde, were the hereditary rulers. 
By shrewdly fulfilling all its duties to the barbaric overlord, this dynasty secured his grace and favour. Free from interference at home, the house of Calita could subjugate the petty Russian princes. Thus, in spite of its dependence on the Mongolians, Moscow was already considered the capital of Russia by the middle of the 14th century. Its ruler was called the Prince of Moscow. Especially under Dmitri, 1362-1389, the consolidation of the Russian lands progressed so that the country felt strong enough to try to throw off the Mongolian yoke. In 1380, Dmitri, with most of the Russian princes, won a victory over the Mongols on the plains of Kulikovo, on the Upper Don, which finally promised the Russians full freedom. But presently the Mongols overwhelmed them with a second invasion. The Khan Timur, Tamerlane, as the follower of Genghis Khan, renewed the Mongolian Empire. The remnants of the Golden Horde in Kipchak also bowed to his rule and gained new strength, through incorporation with the military state. As governor for Timur, Toktamish demanded the old tribute from the Russians. He enforced its payment in 1382 by threatening to raise Moscow. Thus the old dependence was restored. But as the Russians had free sway at home, their power increased unhindered. Hence Dmitri succeeded in conquering Novgorod and making it tributary. He furthered the maintenance of his power by substituting the principle of primogeniture for the seigneurate in the Russian principalities. Footnote. The seigneurate is an institution by which the oldest male member of a family succeeds to the throne. Thus an uncle has precedence over the oldest son of a deceased king. End of footnote. Accordingly, Dmitri's eldest son, Vasily, 1389-1425, to succeeded. He continued his father's policy of maintaining amicable relations with the Mongols and subjugating the Russian princes. He could even thwart the plans of Witold, the Lithuanian, in part by marrying his daughter Sofia and giving up Smolensk to him. Although Mongolian invasions still occurred at intervals, Russia progressed steadily and approached the standard of Western European culture in greater measure. Vasily's reign marks the beginning of Russian legislation, the fortification of towns, and the transformation of the old military, chiefly by the introduction of gunpowder. But the people clung the more doggedly to the Greek church, in which they saw one of the foundations of the growing national state. Consequently, the Russians positively declined the attempts then made towards a union of the Greek and Roman churches. In contradistinction to Russia, the Scandinavian states succumbed to disintegration from the beginning of the 15th century. The Union of Kalmar of 1397 had not sprung from a national necessity, but had been meant to further dynastic interests. At first the people deceived themselves on this point, because the policy adopted on the basis of the Union was anti-German. The crash came in Schleswig. This country was hotly contested after the arbitration of Emperor Sigismund granted it to Eric of Scandinavia as personal property. Supported by the Hanseatic League, Duke Henry, and after 1427 his brother Adolphus, beat off the attack of the enemy. To obtain means for the war, King Eric made ever larger concessions to the Danish nobility at the expense of the crown. On the other hand, the peasantry fell into poverty and serfdom through the weight of the public burdens. The particularistic policy of Sweden soon showed how little the Union of Kalmar had taken root in the three United Nations, 
an uprising of the peasants in 1433 resulted in the regency of two native nobles for Sweden, which nominally still clung to the Union. Of these, Charles Knutson Bonde was made commander of the army and navy, and Christian Vaza was placed at the head of the administration and judiciary. Endless conflicts naturally followed, so that Eric finally left the country when Charles Knutson Bonde alone conducted the regency. The reckless king held his court on the island of Gotland. Now the discontent in Denmark also broke out in revolt. The peasantry rose against the oppression of the nobility. Jutland called upon Duke Adolphus of Schleswig for help, while Norway had to suffer from the administration of the king's stewards. The union was already practically dissolved when the Norwegian and Danish diets declared King Eric deposed and raised his nephew, Christopher of Bavaria, to the throne. Although Knutson Bonde retained his position, Sweden acknowledged Christopher as king, at least nominally. His circumspect and energetic policy gradually won him a better position, inasmuch as the crown was freed from troublesome outward interference by the peace which he made with Adolphus of Schleswig. But in 1448, Christopher's childless death brought on new disturbances. In Sweden, Knutson Bonde was elected king, while the Danes raised the nephew of Adolphus of Schleswig, Count Christian of Oldenburg, to the throne. He tried to strengthen his hold by his marriage with Christopher's widow, while King Eric lived riotously in the castle of Visby. Thence he was dislodged by Knutson. He gave up Gothland to the Danes and returned to his Pomeranian home. Meanwhile, the fight went on between Knutson and Christian of Oldenburg, for the latter was recognized also in Norway, which he formally united to Denmark in 1450. Not until Knutson's arbitrary rule occasioned a revolt did Christian succeed in gaining ground in Sweden. Here he was acknowledged king in 1457, whereupon Knutson went into exile. Nevertheless, even now the union of the three states was more apparent than real. A capitulation forced on Christian at his election granted him the right of electing a successor. But in return, the Danish nobility gained such an influence in taxation, the appointment of officials, and the whole administration, that Denmark was changed into a sort of aristocratic republic. Christian's authority sank more and more in Sweden too. On the other hand, he followed his uncle in 1460 as Duke of Schleswig-Holstein. The estates, however, did not recognize him until he had promised that their country should never be incorporated with Denmark except by a personal union. Notwithstanding, this important district henceforth followed in the wake of Danish politics. This enabled Christian I to emancipate his kingdom gradually from the commercial predominance of the Hanseatic League as well as from its political tutelage. End of chapter 10 the transformation of northeast germany through the german polish wars the history of scandinavia to the second half of the fifteenth century by hans putz